Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Well, here's the question I want to begin with this morning. Uh, And the question is, what is the good life? What is the life that if you had it, you would say, now this is really living. Some of you are picturing a lounge chair on a beach with a cool drink in your hand. But I admit that sounds lovely, but I'm not talking about a great vacation. Um, You could spend your whole life on a beach, and at the end, you would get to the end of your life, and you'd say, what was that all about? What difference did my life even make in this world? You see, there's a a difference between a pleasurable life and the good life. We're talking about what is the good life? For as long as human beings have been recording history, that is the big question that philosophers and poets and ordinary people like you and me have asked. What is the well-lived life? What is the meaningful life? What is the flourishing life? Or to use the language of this passage in verse 9, what is the fruitful life? That's the question. Because every single day, you and me have to make choices. We have to make decisions. Questions like, what should I do today? What should I focus on? What should I care about? What should I love? What should I pursue? What should I value? And we also have to make decisions about questions like, what should I sacrifice for? How should I limit myself? How should I obligate myself? How should I bind myself and commit myself? We all have to make those decisions every day. And and the way we make those decisions, those answers that we give completely depend on what we believe about the good life. So here's the question. How do we figure that out? Is there a good life that is more or less the same for every human being? Or are we free to choose that for ourselves? Um, You know, for those of us who are modern, 21st century Western people, inwardly, we're vigorously nodding our heads and saying, yes, we choose for ourselves. But can we just step outside of our culture for a little bit, stand back and get a little bit of critical distance from our culture and come at this question? Because this is very important stuff. These are important questions that your answers to these questions shape your life and your whole world. So how do we figure this out? We're just in the beginning of a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, Colossae was a city in what is now modern-day Turkey. Back then, it was part of the Roman Empire. 
And the Roman Empire was actually very similar to our modern-day Western culture. There were a lot of stories, a lot of competing stories about what the good life is. And so Paul is writing to these Christians because he wants them to understand what is the world. What does it mean to live a good life? He's writing that they would understand the answers to these questions so that we would know how to answer these questions so that we would know what it is to truly live the good life. It's... The the questions are so important, in fact, that this passage we just read is a prayer. It's that important to Paul that he's praying for the Colossians. And specifically, we're going to see three things that Paul prays. He prays that they would know God's will, that they would enter God's kingdom, and that they would walk in God's kingdom. This prayer is about three things. It's about knowing God's will, entering God's kingdom, and walking in God's kingdom. So let's look at each one of those in turn. And the first thing is knowing God's will. And we see that if you look in verse 9, the very first thing Paul prays is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, when Paul talks about knowing God's will, um, we have to understand what he's not talking about. Uh, We hear that through very modern individualistic ears. When we hear Paul talking about knowing God's will, we think he's talking about his specific will for our individual lives. Like, where should I go to school? What job should I take? Whom should I marry? Where should I live? Those are important questions, but they're not what Paul is talking about here. When Paul talks about knowing God's will, he's talking about knowing the true story of the universe. He's talking about knowing the story of God, the story of the world. A good example of that is in what you and I know as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You remember how the prayer goes? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will, knowing God's will is knowing the one true story of the universe. It's knowing the story about God. That's the story God is telling. It's the story that that is also about what God is doing in this world. It's the one true story of the world. It's the story that says God created the world. God has a vision for the world. That's his will. And God is going to accomplish his vision for the world. It's the story of everything, the real story of everything. And we're going to talk about that story in a lot more detail next week. But for this week, here's the main point, and it's really very simple. There is a story. There is a true story at work in this universe, and it's the story of God. It's the story he's telling. It's the story about what he's doing. God is the author. God is the subject. God is the goal. He's everything. And the most important thing that Paul is trying to help us understand here is that it's not enough not just to know about this story. The reason it's important to know this story is so that we can bring our lives underneath the authority of this story. That's what Paul is saying. And notice that he's saying this in the midst of the Roman Empire. As we just mentioned, ancient Rome was very similar to our modern 21st century culture. And especially, um, Rome was a very pluralistic culture. In ancient Rome, there were literally hundreds of gods, and everyone was free to worship whatever god they wanted, uh, with just one catch. Uh, Everyone was free to worship whatever god they wanted, but there was one god everyone was required by law to worship. It was the emperor. 
Basically, Rome said, you're free to worship whatever God you want. You're free to live by whatever story you want, as long as you don't dare to assert that your story is the one true story, and as long as you submit your story to the larger story of the empire. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound familiar? It should. Modern, secular, Western culture says almost the exact same thing. Secular Western culture says everyone is free to worship whatever God they want. Everyone is free to live by uh, whatever truth they want as long as you don't impinge on other people's truth that they want to live by and as long as you don't dare say that, that your truth is the one truth for the whole world. That is the story that we live with in our modern secular culture. Now, that is almost exactly what ancient Rome said, except for one crucial difference. In ancient Rome, um, they were not neutral. They were very explicit that everyone had to worship the emperor. Now, refusing to do so was an act of treason. So, so in that sense, Rome was not neutral about this. They said, here's the story, and you will abide by this story. In our culture, we don't do that. In our culture, um, at least we don't do it explicitly. Modern secular culture um, claims to be spiritually neutral, but here's what I want us to see this morning. It's not. In our culture, secular culture says um, the most important question is not whether any one particular view of religion or spirituality is true. The most important question is, does it work for you? Does it help you have a good life? Does it help you live a better life, a, a more fruitful life? So for instance, um, I'll give you an example. There's a, a philosopher named Alain de Botton. Um, he's a popular philosopher. He does TED Talks. Um, and he's actually pretty interesting because he's an atheist, but he's an atheist that says religion actually has a lot to offer us, even if you don't believe in God. So I have a lot of admiration for him and agree with a lot of things he says, but not everything. In his book, Religion for Atheists, Alain de Botton says, the most boring an unproductive question one can ask of any religion is whether or not it's true. He says the real question is, how can religion help us live a better life? A life that's more in harmony with other people, uh, where we don't suffer so much, um, where we live happier, more productive lives. He says the really important question is not whether Christianity or any religion is true, but whether it works for you. But think about it. You cannot say the question, does it work, is more important than the question, is it true, unless you've already decided that something else is true, namely what a good life is and what role religion is allowed to play in that. See, that is not a neutral view of spirituality. You haven't avoided the question of, of what's true. You've just kicked the can a little further down the road. But that is not a neutral view about spiritual reality. Now listen, I, I have a lot of gratitude for um, Alain de Baton. I'm very um, glad that he is somebody who advocates that we should live moral lives. He advocates that we should live in harmony with one another. I'm very grateful for that. But I want us to recognize what that view is. That is a framework that says religion's primary value is as a commodity. It's a, it's a consumer good. 
So you're the consumer, you're the one who makes the choices, you're the one who decides what's good for you and what's not good for you, you're the one who decides. That's the way our culture trains us, and in that view, religion is a commodity, it's a consumer good, and you're the one who decides what works for you and what doesn't work for you. So you take bits and pieces of this and that, and you fit them into your life. That is a very common view. That is the way our culture views spiritual reality. Here's the point. In this passage, Paul is saying that the gospel is not a commodity. It's the one true story of who God is and what he's doing in this world. It's not a consumer good that's part of a larger story about ultimate reality. He's saying the gospel is not a self-help program. In other words, you don't pick bits and pieces of it that, quote, work for you and then fit that into your life. You fit your life into it. You take all of yourself, your heart, your will, your decisions, your choices, your emotions, everything, all that you are, you take all of that and then you fit it into, you bring it underneath the authority of the gospel story. That's what Paul is saying here. Friends, it is impossible for us not to live according to some larger story of the universe in ultimate reality. You can say, well, I prefer to remain neutral about such questions. I would never dare presume to say that there's one true story for the universe. We can say that, but at the end of the day, you're going to make decisions. You're going to make choices. You are going to live your life in light of some story about the universe or another story. You can say that you're neutral, but there's no such thing as living neutral. So whether you're exploring Christianity or whether you are a Christian, one of the most important things we can see here that Paul is showing us is that Jesus will not consent to be a consumer good. That's the way our culture encourages us to view spirituality. It says it's, it's a consumer good, it's part of a larger story about reality, but that story, that view of spirituality, stands in opposition to what the gospel claims and what Jesus Christ is telling us about himself. Paul wants to give us eyes to see this. He wants us to understand what are the stories that fill our culture, what are the narratives that capture our imagination. We're going to look a lot more in depth at that when we get to chapter 2. But for now, it's important. Paul is saying, I want you to understand the gospel story. You have to understand this story in order to be able to evaluate all the other competing stories. Because the only way you'll know a counterfeit is if you understand what the genuine is. That's what Paul is saying here. He wants us to understand the true story of the world, the story of who God is and what he's doing. It's the gospel. That's the first thing we see. God wants us, Paul wants us to know God's will. But secondly, Paul is praying that we would enter his kingdom because the heart of this prayer is that more and more we would learn how to bring all of our life underneath the authority of this story, underneath the authority of God's kingship. That the more you understand the story, the more the story gets inside of you, the more a story comes out of you, the more it um, manifests itself in the way you live. So look at the logic of Paul's prayer here. In verse 9, at the very beginning, he prays they would be filled with the knowledge of God. Okay, but why? Verse 10, so as to walk, walking means the way you live, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Do you know what this is? This is the blueprint for a fruitful life. 
This is the flourishing life. Now, last week we learned in the New Testament, fruit means life change. Fruit means character change. Paul is saying the more the gospel bears fruit in you, the more you bear fruit in the world. This is a life of endurance and patience and power and joy and thanksgiving. It's a flourishing, multifoliate, fruitful life. But here's the question. How do we enter into that life? How do we enter in? Because it'd be easy to to hear Paul saying, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and then think that we have to live this, this fruitful life he describes in order to be worthy of the Lord and please God. That is a very traditional religious viewpoint. We were talking about this last week. This traditional religious approach to life says, um, if you live a good life, you will be worthy of the Lord. And you have to live a good life in, in order to please God. That's a very traditional religious viewpoint, but it's not the gospel. And yet it is so easy for us to just slip into this mindset without even realizing that we're doing it. So, for instance, one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. And uh, as far as I can tell, in what I've read about his life, um, Charles Dickens appeared to be a Christian. Um, In fact, he once wrote uh, a biography of Jesus for his children. He cared so much. He wanted his children to know the gospel story. So he wrote a, a book called The Life of Our Lord. And at the very end of the book, he's summing up the whole Christian message for his children. And here's what he says. Remember... It is Christianity to do good always, to love our neighbor as ourself, to be gentle, merciful, and forgiving, and always to show that we love God by humbly trying to do right in everything. If we do this and remember the life and lessons of our Lord Jesus Christ and try to act up to them, we may confidently hope that God will forgive us our sins and enable us to live and die in peace. I don't know Charles Dickens, obviously. I don't know his heart or his relationship with God. But even for Christians, even especially if you're a Christian, it is so easy to fall into this mindset, this, this religious mindset that says, if I live a good life, I'll be worthy of the Lord. If I live a good life, if I remember the lessons of Jesus and try to live up to them, then God will be pleased with me. This traditional religious mindset, but it's not the gospel. It would be easy to look at this passage and think that Paul is saying the exact same thing, but he can't be saying the same thing because he tells us explicitly that he's not saying that, and we see that in verse 12. Giving thanks to God the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a little word right in the beginning of that. It's this word qualified. And here's what that means. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. And here's what he said about John the Baptist. He said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's quite a compliment, isn't it? Especially coming from Jesus, I mean, basically, Jesus is saying, hey, everybody, John the Baptist is the greatest person who ever lived. That's what he's saying. But what did John the Baptist think about himself? 
You know, a lot of people were really impressed with John the Baptist, and for good reason. I mean, he was out in the desert. He was baptizing people. He was preaching the kingdom of God. People were flocking out there. They were having a religious revival out in the desert. People were really impressed with John the Baptist. But what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? He said, he told people, listen, there's someone else coming after me. He's the one you should pay attention to, not me. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Literally, the word John the Baptist uses is the same word in this passage, qualified. He says, I am not qualified even to take off his shoe. In that culture, um, removing someone's shoes for them was, it was considered so menial, so low, so demeaning an act that only servants could do it. You could only ask a servant to do it. And you couldn't ask a, a Jewish person to do it. You'd have to ask a Gentile servant to do it. That's how demeaning it was to take off someone's shoes. And yet here's John the Baptist, whom Jesus just said is the greatest man who ever lived. And he's talking about Jesus. And he says, I am not qualified even to be his slave. I'm not qualified the greatest man who ever lived. And yet here's Paul in this passage, and he's saying, God has already qualified you. God has qualified you to enter into his kingdom and to live in his light. Friends, if even John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, isn't worthy, then we're not worthy, are we? And please understand, I am not saying, and the Bible is not saying, that 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 this means that human beings don't have any worth and value. The Bible says in a number of places, very explicitly, very clear, that every human being is created in the image of God and that every human being has worth and value in God's eyes because of that. The problem is we have all rebelled against God. The problem is we don't live lives that please God. We live lives that please ourselves. That's how we live. Even when we're doing good, most of the time it's about us. There's a, a song in the Broadway musical Avenue Q that sums this up pretty well. It's called The Money Song. It's about um, that one of the characters in the show is asked, he's begging for money from his friend. He's saying, hey, give me some money. And so when finally his friend relents and gives him some money, here's what happens to the friend. He has this revelation. He says, whoa, I feel generous. I feel compassionate. I feel like a good person. Wow, helping other people out makes you feel fantastic. And so the chorus of the song goes like this. It says, when you help others, you can't help helping yourself. Every time you do good deeds, you're also serving your own needs. Now, I'm still trying to figure it out. I would love to ask the songwriters this question. I don't know if they intended it or not, but it's very clear. They're pointing out the reality that even when we're doing good deeds, we can do so and be profoundly selfish about it. It's not about serving the other people. It's about us. It's about how it makes us feel. It's not about pleasing God. It's about pleasing ourselves. That's the way we work in this world. That's the way we operate. We live to please ourselves. When our culture says, everyone should be free to live however they want, do you realize what that's saying? It's saying the most important thing is your feelings, your desires, your desires. It's all about pleasing yourself. But, but we don't live that way. We don't live to please God. We live to please ourselves. Now listen, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then that makes perfect sense. Live however you want. 
Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, Sartre, many others pointed this out. That makes perfect sense to live however you want if there is no God. But if there is a God, do you begin to see our problem? We don't live to please him. God, now listen, do you think God cares about whether or not we live a good life? Do you think God wants for us to live a good life? Of course he does. The problem is we don't. We can't. We're not worthy. We're not qualified. We're not sufficient. And that's why it's so amazing that in this passage, Paul is saying, you're not worthy, but you're worthed. You're not qualified, but God has qualified you to enter into his kingdom, to enter into his light and his love and his pleasure, that God is pleased with you, so pleased that he would qualify you to enter into his kingdom. Now, how does he do that? Verse 13 tells us he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. In the Bible, redemption means getting someone out of bondage by giving something in exchange for them. Redemption means getting someone out of bondage by giving something in exchange for them. So here's the question. What did God give in exchange to get us out of bondage? Verse 14 tells us, in him, that's Jesus, in him we have redemption. It's saying Jesus is our redemption. Jesus gave himself to get us out of the bondage to self-serving and self-pleasing. He is our redemption. And think about it. Who is Jesus? When Jesus was baptized himself, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that the heavens opened and the voice of God came out saying, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Talk about living a life that is fully pleasing to God. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever lived a life that is fully pleasing to God. He's the only one who ever was totally worthy of God, totally qualified. And yet Jesus Christ came to earth to live the life that we could never live, but on the cross he took the punishment that only we deserve. Jesus stood in our place so that we could stand in his place. He was plunged into the darkness of despair and, cut and being in alienation from God, he was plunged into the darkness so that we could be transferred into the light, into the love, into the good pleasure of God. He is our redemption. That's how we enter the kingdom. And it leads to our last point. We've seen Paul praise that we would know God's will, that we would know, we would understand the one true story of the world, that the gospel, Jesus Christ, is not a commodity, not a consumer good, that you have to understand that story and bring your life underneath the authority of that story. We've just seen the way you enter his kingdom is by understanding that, that we are not qualified in and of ourselves, that God has qualified us by the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But lastly, what does it mean to walk in the kingdom? What does it mean to walk in this kingdom? Because only now that we've seen all of this can we come back to what it means to live a life that pleases God. Remember, we were just talking about, does God want us to live a good life? Of course he does. Of course he does. He cares so much that we would get, live good lives that he came to earth himself, died on a cross in order to help us make a beginning in living a good life. But it's really interesting the way Paul talks about it here. He doesn't say live an obedient life, even though that's what he's talking about. Remember what we saw in the first point. The more you understand the story of the gospel, the more that story shapes your life. 
The more the story comes into you, the more the story comes out of you. One word for that is obedience. But that's not the word Paul uses. He doesn't say live a life fully obedient to the Lord. He says fully pleasing to the Lord. Fully pleasing to the Lord. Here's the reason. When you love someone, pleasing them doesn't feel like obedience. When you love someone, sacrificing for them, it doesn't feel like sacrifice. In fact, the more you love them, the more pleasure it gives you to serve them. And I'm not talking about what we were just talking about a moment ago. You know, it's easy to serve people, and really it's just about you. It's about how it makes you feel. But in that case, you're not doing it because you love that person. You're not serving them because you love them. You're you're serving them because you love yourself. You're thinking about yourself. But this is an entirely different motivation. When you love someone, I mean really love someone, you're thinking less about yourself. You're thinking less about what you get out of it. It gives you pleasure to serve them, but you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about them. When you see that Jesus Christ is pleased with you, that he loves you, that he loves you so much that he would come to earth and die on a cross for you, when that begins to really break through your heart, when that begins to really penetrate all of the walls that we put up, the pride, the self-control, the shame, when that really begins to break through our hearts, that begins to bear the fruit of love in our life. And friends, there is nothing more powerful than love. I don't know if you noticed, but there is a lot of power language in this passage. In verse 11, it says, being strengthened with all power, literally being empowered with all power, according to the glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Or verse 13, it says, he has delivered us, that's an act of power, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has wielded power on your behalf and within you. It's the power of love. And there is nothing more powerful than love, especially sacrificial love. The gospel is the story of Jesus, of who God is and what he's doing in this world. That he loved you so much that he would come to this earth and die on a cross in order to deliver you from the domain of darkness and into his light, into his kingdom. That's the gospel story. And the more that story gets inside of you, the more that story comes out of you. The more it it comes into you, the more it, it begins to transform your imagination, your heart, your life. It just bubbles up out of you without you even thinking about it because it has transformed you. So for instance, um, I was talking about Charles Dickens a little bit ago. One of the really interesting things to me is that when Charles Dickens was thinking explicitly about the Christian religion, you know, he's writing a book for his kids and he gets to the end of the book and he says, okay, what's the lesson? What do I want to teach my kids about Christianity? He's thinking explicitly about his theology and he comes up with this traditional religious viewpoint that says, if you're a good person, God will love you, which is not the gospel. But when he was writing stories, when he wasn't thinking explicit, that the gospel story was so deep inside of him that it would just bubble up in everything he wrote. It just bubbled out of him. That, that he explained the gospel better in his stories when he wasn't thinking about the gospel than he did when he was trying to explicitly articulate his theology. 
So one of the best examples of this, uh, one of my favorite examples, is from Oliver Twist. And it's, it's one of the best illustrations of what we mean when we talk about what it means to live a life pleasing to God. If you remember the story, Oliver Twist is a poor little orphan boy, abused, neglected, abandoned, and he runs away to London and falls in with a pack of thieves. And one night, in a robbery attempt... It goes wrong, and Oliver gets shot by one of the house servants, and all the other thieves abandon him and leave him for dead. But the two ladies of the house, Miss Maley and Miss Rose, they have pity on Oliver. They take him into their home, and they nurse him back to health. And here's what Charles Dickens says about what happened next. He says, After a while, Oliver began to get better, and to be able to say sometimes, in a few tearful words, how deeply he felt the goodness of the two sweet ladies and how ardently he hoped that when he grew strong and well again, he could do something to show his gratitude, something which would let them see the love and duty which filled his breast, something, however slight, which would prove to them that their gentle kindness had not been cast away, but that the poor boy whom their charity had rescued was eager to serve them with all his heart and soul. One day, when Oliver had been trying to utter the words of thankfulness that rose to his pale lips, Miss Rose said, poor fellow, you shall have many opportunities of serving us, if you will. We're going to the country, the quiet place, the pure air, and all the pleasures and beauties of spring will restore you in a few days, and we will employ you in a hundred ways when you can bear the trouble. And Oliver said, the trouble? My dear lady, if I could but work for you, if I could only give you pleasure by watering your flowers or watching your birds or running up and down the whole day long to make you happy, what would I give to do it? And Miss Maley, smiling, said, you shall give nothing at all. Friends, Jesus gave everything so that giving everything to him would not feel like it to you. He gave everything because he's pleased with you, because he loves you. He gave everything. And the more you see that, the more that story gets into you, the more that story comes out of you. The more it shapes your mind, your imagination, your heart, it just bubbles up out of you. That's obedience, but it would never feel like it. It just feels like, I want to please the God who was so pleased with me that he died on a cross for me. Know that story. Enter into that story, enter into that kingdom, and then walk in the light of that story in that kingdom. Know it, enter it, walk in it. Let's pray.